Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is so great. I'm finally back at work after six weeks of recuperating from my injuries. I can't wait to get back into the swing of things and hear what my colleagues are talking about. Greg, did you check out Breitbart this morning? No time for that. Steve Ducey was keeping it so real on Fox and Friends. Well, check out Breitbart. They're really sticking it to Hillary. Well, that's a little odd. Maybe I'm hearing it out of context. Susan Collins is such a traitor, turning her back on Mr. Trump that way. Finally, we get someone who's willing to change the system. No wonder the system's fighting back. Well, this is super weird. Get that baby out of here. I'm kidding. I love babies. No, seriously, kick that baby out. Uh, Okay, something is wrong. Really wrong. Greg, can we talk privately? What is it, Cayenne? Kayone, I've only been gone for six weeks. How could you forget my name? Yes, we were told you might be upset. Told by whom? You're very high strung. Here's a delicious fruit drink I've mixed up to help you relax. What is this stuff? It's called Fruit Smack. We all drink it now. Is it like Kool-Aid? I've never heard of Kool-Aid. Okay, where did you get this stuff? It came in a box. It was such a nice box. But you must drink it. You are the chosen one. Chosen for what? You will bear our office Trump child. It will be born on the sixth floor on June 6th. It will be named Idranka. You mean I've been designated as some kind of uterine carrying case for a false prophet who will lead the people astray using naked power, signs, lying wonders, and uh, every kind of wicked deception? Yes. Did you run this past legal? Yes, they're fine with it. Huh. Then I am, too. It's great to be back. Give me some of that fruit snack, and let's get the show going. And now he believes keeping up with the Kardashians should be an Olympic sport. Colin McEnroe. That's true. I'm not exactly sure how how it would work. I guess you and the Kardashians would start together, and then each country's designated runner would see whether he or she could keep up with the Kardashians. Um, Yes, so Kyone uh, Wolf is back. We're very excited about that. We're excited about all kinds of things, but certainly getting her back after losing her for six weeks uh, is exciting and fun for us. We also have a great uh, scramble set up for you. Uh, Lots of interesting guests using all kinds of different technology. We're going to, in the second and third segments, talk about the Olympics. There's uh, very much to talk about. Although I have this theory that one of the problems with the Olympics now is you can watch it on so many different channels that people don't see the same thing. It used to be that people would come in and everybody had seen the same thing. Uh, anyway, that'll come later. Uh, we've got uh, some guests lined up. Well, it's Al- Alexandra Petri from The Washington Post uh, and uh, Josh Levine from Slate uh, will be joining us. But right now we're going to be talking about the campaign also from The Washington Post, a guy we've had on many times, Philip Bump, a writer for The Washington Post politics blog, The Fix. Welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you very much. Uh, Phil is joining us through the magic of Skype, a communication 
technology and a delicious soft serve ice cream. So, you know, I think maybe where, where I'd like to begin, Phil, is elsewhere on the Washington Post site uh, right now, there's a piece by Stu Rothenberger basically saying, eh, it's probably over. He says three months from now, the 2016 presidential election uh, in the rearview mirror, uh, we will look back and agree that the presidential election was over on August 9th. Um, and that's something I think that journalists like you have to work against maybe and fight, right? That, I mean, every day is a snapshot of the day itself, and you can sort of see trend lines, but nobody really knows what's going to happen in the next two or three months. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at uh, if November plays out along the lines of what the polling currently suggests, then I think Stu's absolutely right that we could have predicted it at this point. I think the real question mark here is, this election cycle, more than most election cycles, feels as though it's ripe for some sort of jarring event. You know, WikiLeaks drops something weird in October, or at one of the debates, Donald Trump does something that uh, shifts the focus of, of how the campaign is going. Um, we we tend to overestimate the extent to which those things make a difference. In past elections, you know, gaffes and so on haven't really made any sort of difference, and, and that you could have fairly easily predicted the campaign in advance. This campaign feels as though it's more ripe for that. Whether or not it is, is up for debate. But I think the broader point that Donald Trump is in an extremely bad position right now is completely fair. Yeah, you know, to your point, I mean, one of the things, because we can just look back one cycle and say that in 2012, I mean, certainly it seemed during the summer as though Romney was kind of falling apart. There were a lot of things going wrong with him from the 47 percent to some stuff that was just going on in his numbers. And then we headed into the first debate and, and Obama underperformed and everybody freaked out and everybody <laughs> concluded that the election was back up for grabs or maybe Obama had blown the election. And that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, that from the ground level, it's hard. You can't get a bird's eye view on the entire timeline of the election. So things happen on a given day and they seem massive whether they are or not. Yeah, that's generally true. I think that what makes this election different from 2012, 2008, 2004 and anything going back to probably, you know, the early 1900s is that Donald Trump's not running a real campaign. He's not on the ground in states, which I, I looked at this morning. He's not spending any money on advertising right now, which is Beyond, you know, bizarre, bizarre the, the outside the realm of what we've seen in politics in general before, much less presidential politics. He simply isn't in the place to actually be able to leverage moments. Like if he does have a big moment at a debate, he has proven in the past that he doesn't even have like a social media team that can that can ramp up to deal with that. That may change by October, but the fact that he has no campaign infrastructure makes it even harder to see how some big you know a big disrupting event could actually change in his in on his behalf simply because he doesn't have any resources to back it up so one thing that can happen here, you know, to, to the point of the ground game is he doesn't seem to have put the structure in, in place. He hasn't made the hires, uh, the requisite hires, as you're saying. He just doesn't have the infrastructure. On the other hand, people who live in various places who want to see him get elected or don't want to see Clinton get elected, I mean, they are free to assemble their own ground game. Is that happening anywhere? Um, yeah, I mean, so in Cincinnati, for example, there's a great story in Cincinnati Inquirer where a group of Trump supporters, because they hadn't seen anyone from Trump's campaign putting something together, 
they basically form their own campaign office and they want to go out and, and talk to voters. That's all well and good. I mean, every campaign is happy to have enthusiastic volunteers. But what most campaigns do is they have very sophisticated, smart data operations that can target particular voters for outreach. So when you're sending people out to knock on doors, you know that they're a registered voter, much less that they are planning to support your candidate or can be persuaded to support your candidate. The Trump campaign doesn't seem to have that at any scale across the country, which is, I mean, much less in swing states. It's just, it's, it's baffling. You know, in some ways, I was reading your piece about the ground game and I was thinking, you know, in some ways, if you strip away the xenophobia and the bullying and the harsh language and the confrontations with gold star families and all the other stuff that's been so problematic about the campaign in recent weeks, um, what's sitting underneath it is the kind of campaign that we tend to romanticize and that mainly exists in movies, right? That we're always waiting for sort of a Bullworth type campaign where the the, the candidate goes on his instincts uh, and you know doesn't use micro targeting and big data, but just has this sort of overwhelming message and isn't hiring tons of staff and isn't sculpting and focus grouping his message really really carefully to get exactly the right you know data group in in North Carolina on this particular day. I mean, Trump's kind of of doing the thing that we romanticize, except it looks really, really stupid when somebody does it in real life. Yeah, I mean, it, it's inexplicable. I mean, Donald Trump, there were two candidates in the primary season who used this strategy of trying to rely on the media and not having a lot going on on the ground, not doing a whole lot of advertising. And that was Donald Trump and Marco Rubio. Rubio, uh, it did not work. Uh, Donald Trump, it did work in part because he was running against so many people, in part because he came into this thing as a celebrity, in part because he was able to dominate media attention. The problem is that now that he's gotten to the general election, A, that small base of Republican voters who got him past all the other Republicans, he hasn't shown that his ability to expand much past that base. He's gotten some more Republicans, but he hasn't solidified the Republican base in the way that Hillary Clinton has solidified the Democrats, and that's a big problem for him. That's one of the reasons that the polls are so bad for him right now is Republicans aren't there for him. Uh, the other problem is that his strategy of dominating the media doesn't work in a one-on-one -on -one general election race. Very few people pay attention to the primaries. We forget that. The Times had a great visual that showed 9% of Americans were the ones that actually came out and bothered to vote in the primaries. But now people are paying attention. People are looking at what's happening in the race, and that means Clinton's getting a lot of coverage, too. And so Donald Trump is in the news, but he can't dominate the media in the same way he did. Plus, he's not running in 16 other people. And so both of those things are disadvantages now as opposed to advantages. Yeah, and I want to come back to that uh, as we talk a little bit later about his economic message, because, I mean, part of the other problem of the primaries is it's a boutique, not a supermarket. So, you know, if you get 13 million people to believe your message there, you've done an amazing job in the primaries. Uh, but in the election, you need 65 million people to believe what you're saying. So but let's come to that back to that in, in just a second. It seems to me, Phil, one of the things that f for journalists is uh, either tempting or, or real is that, you know, for a long time, so many of the things that he did that seemed counterintuitive or counterproductive actually worked. Uh, he actually kept blowing through ceilings that we had set for him. But now it's sort of like you, you watch things and you think that shouldn't work and it doesn't. And that's very specific to the conventions. You know, watching the Republican convention, you're thinking, well, this shouldn't work. It, do, it seems to eliminate voters as opposed to inviting new voters in, you know, and then watching the Democratic conventions, you're thinking, well, that should work because, in fact, many of these messages are essentially positive. They seemed in general to you know get their all star team out on the field and have all of them do the things that they do really well. And then what happened? Well, that's exactly the way it played out, right? The Republican convention didn't work. The Democratic one did. 
That's exactly right. So Gallup uh, does polling on conventions, has polled on conventions since 1984. Uh, and they essentially ask people the extent to which a convention made them more or less likely to support a candidate. In every single time they had asked that question up until this year, people had said, yes, that convention made me more likely to support the candidate. The exception, of course, being Donald Trump. His convention made people less likely to support him, which is absolutely baffling because and i've used that term like 17 times during this interview but it is it's baffling how someone can have essentially a four-day infomercial that airs on most major news networks and come away with fewer people wanting to buy the product so yes you're absolutely right that what donald trump did in the primary shouldn't have led to a primary victory and it did and that was something that surprised a lot of folks what donald trump is doing now should not lead to a general election victory and it seems as though he's it's not going to based on polls at this moment. And that is a lot less surprising. I think the other thing that we're seeing that that seems unprecedented to me, the wholesale defections. I mean, Susan Collins is the latest Republican. We've had other members of Congress say that they just they can't do this. They can't vote. We've had the uh, group of mostly Republican appointed military and defense advisors uh, within the last uh, 36 hours or so put out their statement about, you know, this guy's not dangerous. He's dangerous. He's not fit. Uh, We've got this weird insurgent uh, candidacy in in Utah, I, I, you know I we I remember when Zell Miller kind of defected from the Democratic Party, uh, and that was like a big story. You know, Zell Miller is giving a keynote speech at the Republican convention. What's happening here is that on steroids. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to know the extent to which Hillary Clinton's campaign has had a hand in this. It's clear, for example, that she helped woo Meg Whitman, who was one of the big defections last week, uh, who would run for governor's Republican uh, in California. Uh, you know, So the Clinton campaign is clearly seeking people who can fit into this. We don't know if uh, Senator Susan Collins or, or some of these other folks uh, play into that, but it absolutely reinforces a very smart strategy that the Democrats rolled out at the convention, which is Republicans, it's okay not to like Trump. And they, you know, Barack Obama made that case, Hillary Clinton made that case, and it looks as though it has been effective, that, that they are giving Republicans the space to walk away from a guy who right now looks like he's going to lose. And, you know, I mean, Susan Collins is coming out and she's taking this bold stand, but she's only doing it after it looks like the guy's down 10 points. So it's a little less bold than it might have seemed, you know, a month ago. Uh, But regardless, there is this concerted effort by the Democrats to make space for folks to object to Donald Trump. And they're being successful at that either directly or indirectly. And that's why we're seeing these sorts of defections. And normally, like in 1996, when Bob Dole was faltering against Bill Clinton, the move wasn't ignore Bob Dole. He's bad and he's bad for the party. It was it's okay to run by yourself because Dole's not going to carry you. In this case, it is the former. It is Donald Trump is not a Republican. And so we as Republicans won't back him. And that's proven to be an effective message. Um, One of the words we use a lot uh, in covering campaigns, maybe too much, is the word pivot. So in this case, we've been applying it a lot to Trump with the notion that at some point he is going to pivot away from his primary strategy, start listening to his uh, handlers speak off the cuff, less create news, less with intemperate remarks that he makes, and maybe begin to focus the campaign on actual policy and substance. So yesterday he took a swing at that. He took a stab at that. I think we have to look at his economic uh, policy speech as an attempt. Uh, to do something more along those lines. Uh, I know you kind of broke it down. First of all, was there anything new in that speech, anything we we couldn't have found on Trump's website? 
Uh, it's a good question. And um, yes, there is some stuff we couldn't find on Trump's website because he took down a lot of his old proposals <laughs> before the speech. Uh, uh, and it's not really clear why. One reason is that his tax plan changed and the percentages, he's going to have three tax brackets and the percentages changed between what he'd had on his website and what, what came up later. But beyond that, most of what he presented yesterday is stuff he had said in the past, uh, the exceptions being a moratorium on new regulations, uh, which was very... Uh, ban Muslim immigrant-esque in the sense that it was very sweeping and didn't have a lot of specifics on time frames. Uh, and then also this very nebulous uh, child care proposal that he put forward, um, uh, making child care tax-free. Beyond that, it was stuff he'd said before, and it was clearly the campaign, someone at the campaign doing a very typical campaign-y thing, which is try and refocus attention on something you want to talk about, which in Trump's case is the economy, where he continues to lead Hillary Clinton in most polls. Uh, and so they were trying to end this two weeks of just dire, terrible news by giving a moment of focus around the economy. And then, of course, you know, six hours after Donald Trump gave that speech, he tweeted about how there's this big conspiracy around an Iranian scientist. So, I mean, this is, this is in a nutshell the problem with Donald Trump's campaign is that even when they do the right thing, however well or poorly it's received, Donald Trump can't help stepping on it a couple hours later. So, you know, just looking at that speech, to my unpracticed eye, the other issue I, I saw with it is, in terms of the illness that he's been describing for months and months and months, he doesn't seem to be offering the right medicine. It's like, you've got measles, here's some Flonase. Um, you know, that, that he's been talking about uh, a bunch of people who've been economically left behind. They represent the middle class, the lower middle class, the, the working class. We can kind of assemble some kind of mosaic of who they are. Um, but the stuff that he was trotting out yesterday, for the most part, seemed like kind of boilerplate Republican tax proposals that that don't seem targeted, especially at that group he was talking about. Yeah, I think that's right. And, but I think it's important to remember that his core base of supporters are uh, white men who don't have college degrees. Those people, uh, you know, there are a lot of those folks who uh, really, really like Donald Trump, who aren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and he doesn't need to appeal to that group. Who he needs right now is he needs Republicans. That, you know, I mentioned this earlier, that is why he's trailing as badly as he is, because Republicans aren't on board with his candidacy. And what he outlined yesterday was fairly typical uh, uh, Republican rhetoric on taxes and on the economy. Uh, you know, he even said this tax plan, he had this other tax plan with a certain number of brackets. And he said, these are this is the bracket uh, grouping that the House Republicans want to see. And that's what I'm adopting. I mean, he, he gave credit to the House Republicans in that regard. He talked about the estate tax, uh, which he has talked about in the past, but obviously is something that that has been a, a focal point of Republican politics for a while. He was trying to make the case to those moderate Republicans who are wavering, the, the Susan Collins of the world. He was trying to make the case, look, I am the guy who is picking up the Mitt Romney mantle on the economy, with the big exception of trade, uh, which obviously he can't backtrack on. Uh, so in that regard, we'll see how successful it was as polling comes out. But it, it's clear that that is who he was trying to talk to more than middle class independents. And, and rightly so. I mean, he needs to get Republicans on board sooner than he needs to get independents on board. Phil, it seems also as though the the message that underlies that message also may not work quite as well with the group that you're describing. A lot of what Trump says in order to incite interest in his what, whatever policy ideas he does have has to do with the notion that the economy really sucks, right? That things are really bad, people right. are really miserable, uh, that the trends uh, are universally pointing downward. And, and they probably are for the group 
group of left behind people that have constituted his core followers. But the people that you're talking about right now are probably, by and large, doing okay in the Obama economy. If you look at all the the indices that represent economic confidence or uh, belief that things are going well, um, uh, certainly the economy is, I think, outperforming the numbers that it had even in the 2012 cycle. So the question I would have is, can can Trump give an essentially pessimistic message, which then leads to this kind of messianic argument that he's the only person who can fix all this horrible stuff that's wrong, to a bunch of people who may not believe the original dark vision? Uh, It's a great question. You know, I mean, I think that the the pitch he made, the the now famous line, I alone can fix this, was talking about how the system uh, was working against the average guy in his speech. Uh, You know, he made that pitch explicitly. He has for a long time been making that pitch. Uh, you know, that that is focused primarily on those middle class uh, workers. Uh, He has, you know, gotten a lot of support from that group. He hasn't expanded that group out, you know, he hasn't expanded that support outward even among those voters. Uh, I guess what I would say is there's no indication at this point that that a message that is similar to what he's been providing over the course of the past year, very heavily focused on blue-collar whites, there's no indication at this point that's going to help him expand his base. That said, I think that there was enough specificity around issues that have been traditional Republican economic issues uh, that he presented yesterday in Detroit that that may be a better pitch. Whether or not his doom and gloom, the economy's doomed sort of thing uh, is as good a sales pitch as, as he seems to think more broadly. Uh, Phil Bump from the Washington Post. La- last area I wanted to get in with you. Uh, a few weeks ago, obviously, we had the spectacle of Trump getting in a lot of trouble for seeing kind of off the cuff and in a way that struck me as exactly what he claimed it was, a joke, but a very aggressive joke. You know, why don't the Russians go find uh, Hillary's uh, emails? As long as you're hacking us, hack in, find all those missing emails. The problem with it was that even if even if it was a joke, it was being made by a guy who was just about to, if he hadn't already, um, start getting the intelligence briefings, which have ex- been extended to candidates uh, as a courtesy since, I think, 1952. Uh, so suddenly you're a guy who is maybe... Uh, on an inner ring of information. And so things that you say can be interpreted interpreted in the, on the national stage in ways that you've never intended. Maybe you have to learn to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more, quote unquote, uh, presidential. But so what do we know about these intelligence briefings? Um, and, and is Trump absolutely definitely getting them right now? Uh, it's a it's a great question. It's a it's a pretty misunderstood thing. So I spoke with Lanny Chen, who uh, accompanied Mitt Romney to the two briefings that Romney had in 2012, and he told me a little bit about how it works. Uh, a lot of things that are worth pointing out. The first is that no, this is not legally required. It is a courtesy extended by the existing administration. And in 2012, it was Barack Obama essentially helping his opponent bone up on foreign policy. Uh, you know, but that was that is what you do. That is the tradition, and so that was what was done. Uh, it is one or two, maybe three briefings, depending on what's going on in the world. Uh, it is not a, a daily brief that they get that has detailed classified information. This isn't troop movements. It is helping to situate, and this this is uh, Mr. Chen's words. It's helping to situate the candidate in the the foreign policy of the world, and it is it is trying to make sure that they have a general sense of what's happening, how the United States is positioned, so that when they become president if they should win the election, they are, you know, they're not coming in totally unaware of what is happening in the moment. But that said, this is also not high-level classified information. The people presenting this, it is up to their discretion. These are intelligence officers. 
they decide what is said. They decide how it is conveyed. There are no papers or anything. It's just a, it's essentially a PowerPoint presentation, then a question and answer session. Uh, and so that said, if Donald Trump is going into these briefings and he was supposed to have started them this month, it's not clear on whether or not he did. Uh, when he goes into these briefings, there are skilled intelligence professionals in that room with him who no doubt are aware of some of the concerns that exist out there in the world. And so they may, for example, or they have the, all of the space that they need to, for example, not give as much detail on what's happening in Russia if they're concerned about what Donald Trump is doing. Uh, you know, this is this is a very subjective thing that is a courtesy that is extended to the candidates, uh, which I think is not something that most people realize. Yeah, I, although it feels as though, I mean, I certainly wouldn't blame them if they felt more comfortable telling Hillary Clinton certain things than they felt comfortable telling Donald Trump, given the just general level of deportment that each one has shown. But it seems kind of unfair, too. It's like, well, we're going to tell Hillary some stuff because we think she can handle it. Yes, it does. But I mean, these things are tailored anyway. I mean, it's not the case that there is a standard briefing that they give to the political candidates. It is driven in part by what the candidate wants to know. Right. And so Donald Trump can say, hey, I'd love to know, you know, what business what the business markets look like in Ukraine tomorrow. And they can tell him that or not. Right. I mean, it, it is it is this is a customized thing, helping to fill in gaps for the candidate. Uh, depending on what the candidate wants to know. So I think it is totally natural that they would learn different things uh, regardless. All right. Uh, On that reassuring note, uh, we're going to end with Phil Bump, uh, writer for The Washington Post, politics blog, The Fix. As usual, great to talk to you. Thanks. I appreciate it. We're going to come back with Josh Levine. The last time we tried to have Josh Levine on, I think it might have been right after Phil Bump was on, our phones blew up, our communications blew up. It was like Rio, except we're going to be so much better this time. I'm so afraid right now because the last time I was so excited the last time we had Josh Levina. I'm a big fan of Hang Up and Listen. We had the first two charms in our charm bracelet. Uh, I mean, Mike Pesca is like wallpaper here. We're just so used to him. We'd had Stefan Fatsis on uh, uh, of these three dashing amigos. Uh, Josh was the last. And I gave him a similar elaborate introduction, and then he wasn't there because we were having really bad, like really bad technology problems here. Uh, so, Josh Levine, uh, I'll be so reassured when I hear your voice. Say something. I am the wallpaper in your charm bracelet. (laughs) All right. So uh, things are great uh, that we can hear uh, Josh. And I'm now going to add Alexandra Petri. She's not part of uh, any group of three musketeers. She's more like Leo DiCaprio and the Revenant making her way across a deserted and blasted and bare infested landscape with no one to help her. But she does it anyway with uh, great humor. Alexandra Petri, welcome to this conversation. I'm excited to be the bear in the charm bracelet. No, you're not the bear. You're the... You're the person who the bear is taking liberties with your person, um, <laughs> as as was the case with Leo. So, Josh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Alexandra. I'm the bear affiliate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I stepped on your on your joke. That's uh, unforgivable. So, Josh, you know, one of the things we knew going into these Olympics is that they were going to be challenged maybe in a way that Olympics, although they are always challenged. We covered this last week on our show. They're always challenged with all kinds of public policy questions and, and, and doping questions. And I mean, that goes back to the 1930s. But these seem to be bearing a very special set of burdens. And I guess unsurprisingly, it's been a little difficult to gin up the kind of enthusiasm that you hope to see in the Olympics. Ratings are down. And, and do, you, do you think it's all because of the very unflattering run-up? Well, I think there are a lot of complicating factors when it comes to looking at TV ratings, and it's only been a couple of days. I think maybe Americans just have not felt their full-blooded patriotism come to the fore yet. 
But, you know, Michael Phelps had a South African guy glaring at him in the pool last night. And as a country, I feel like that's something that we're probably not going to stand for. And I hope that the ratings will rise uh, commensurately. Um, But, you know, I'm skeptical of the idea that people here, Olympics fans, people who tune in every four years, are really turned off by the notion that things aren't going that well in Brazil. Like that connection to me, um, it seems a little bit far-fetched. There are a lot of things going on in the U.S. that are problematic right now. And so I think that would probably be more in the forefront of, of people's minds rather than than issues in South America. Although, Alexandra, I think those of us who are uh, troubled by some of the things going on in the USA right now might have been looking forward to the Olympics as a place that, to which we could turn our attentions and get a little brain rest and calm down, down a little bit. And, and it does seem as though NBC, it, perhaps in its own self-interest, Alexandra, is trying to give us exactly that. Yeah, I think it is, as you were saying, the problems in, Josh, uh, the problems in America are the ones that we're desperate for a break from. And so seeing that Rio is having, you know, disasters and that there's species in the water and species, I'm not, I misspoke, but now I'm thinking like mutant fish somehow. Um, but this, like the idea that somewhere else things are going badly, it's kind of reassuring. It's like, hey, we're not alone with this. Uh, and as far as ratings go, yeah, anytime Michael Phelps gets glared at by someone who's trying to establish a national rivalry or Lily King with her finger-wagging in response to the initial finger-wagging of a suspicious Russian swimmer, I think that's the sort of thing that'll carry us back to the heyday of Rocky and et cetera. Well, so uh, about that, Josh. First of all, maybe I've forgotten all this, but I'm just not... I don't associate swimming, Olympic swimming, any kind of competitive swimming, with a lot of smack talk and finger wagging and thumb biting and glaring. I mean, am I forgetting stuff? I mean, did people try to get up in Mark Spitz's grill? I don't know about getting up in Mark Spitz's grill. I mean, he had that very intimidating mustache, very intimidating mustache on that man. But uh, I think it was Gary Hall Jr., American uh, swimmer who said that the Americans were going to smash their international rivals like guitars, which is a very specific uh, image that he conjured, which I appreciated. Then there's this, been this huge rivalry between the Americans and the French in the 4 by 100 freestyle men's relay where the U.S. behind Jason Lezak came back on the last lap in 2008 and was really one of the best Olympic events ever. Um, And then 2012, the French got it back. And then in 2016, just a few days ago, the American men took it back. And you got to see Michael Phelps hulking out on the pool deck. There is just a lot of really strange, um, you know, behavior and posturing on the pool deck. Just like they're flapping all these muscles that most of us don't even have (laughs) and like glaring at each other. I, I feel like you are missing something, Colin. There's this very pervasive psychodrama at the pool. Well, although, Alexandra, the finger-wagging to which you allude between a Russian swimmer uh, and an American swimmer, I mean, that's that goes a little further. I mean, I, you know, and, and I, maybe finger-wagging is exactly the kind of bird versus magic storyline that this Olympics needs. I think, yeah, bird versus magic is usually just reserved for Pokemon now. So anytime we can get it back into the storyline, <laughs> that's something we want to cultivate. But I also think swimming is a strange sport 
with all the historical rivalries and the fact that usually there's one person in the pool who's just sort of swimming laps around everyone, which you can use literally like Katie Ledecky is just, she's just racing the clock at this point. And the people are there like to, you know, just as a flourish because you don't want to have seven empty lanes. I think she's literal magic, but the whole, like, yeah, where does the drama and swimming come from? Because if you're smack talking under the water, that's obviously not going to be successful. But I want to sort of throw in something else, which is all those weird cupping marks that everyone seems to have. And apparently, someone on Twitter was joking that this is just a cover-up for the tentacle fetish that clearly is besieging the U.S. Olympic team. But everyone's got these weird circular marks that look like someone went over them on, like, was decided to turn them into a Dalmatian and then sort of stopped midway through and thought better of it. And I think we need to discuss... What all is going on with this? It's clearly not doping, but it's, it's unsightly. So, Josh, uh, I, I'm not even sure I introduced you properly. I was so excited to hear your voice. Josh Levine, uh, writer and executive editor at Slate and the host of Slate Sp- Sports Podcast, of which I am a huge fan. Hang up and listen. Uh, do you ha- can you give us any? Can you give Alexandra any needed insight on on cupping? Reassure me. Yeah. Uh, the reassurance I can offer is that it's pointless and does not offer any benefit other than the placebo effect, although the placebo effect can be a powerful one. It's the 2016 equivalent of kinesio tape. Remember oh, yeah. when a couple of cycles ago, every athlete in every sport began to sport these like odd patterns of tape, like they were going to paint themselves and didn't want to, you know, that blue tape didn't want to get paint on their biceps. Um, this is, you know, the the 2016 iteration of that. It's sort of like a kind of massage where they're applying suction to loose muscles. I don't particularly understand it. All I know is that various, uh, you know, research has shown that it does not do anything. But as long as, you know, it helps Michael Phelps feel psychologically that he can uh, take down his South African rival, I think as Americans, we we must support it. It's sort of a non-sexual aquatic hickey, I think. Um, so, Josh, yeah. first of all, I want to point out that Hang Up and Listen is doing an extra daily podcast for Hang Up and Listen junkies like me, and also because you want to know what's going on uh, at the Olympics. Although, Josh, I feel as though one of the challenges with each passing iteration of the Olympics, I'm, I'm old enough so that I do remember Mark Spitz, and I do remember when everybody basically saw the same Olympics, and then you'd come into work or you'd go to school or whatever, and everybody would have this kind of, you know, quote-unquote, water cooler conversation about it. And now everything is so bespoke, you know, that you, you guys were talking up and on hang up and listen about how you could use, you know, all the online options and stuff to essentially curate your own set of perceptions about the Olympics in terms of what you see and what events you want. You could just focus on one apparatus and gymnastics and see what everybody does. And in a way, I think it kind of breaks down one of the most enjoyable things about the Olympics, which was we used to all talk about the same stuff. Yeah, I mean, people compare, excuse me, people complain about the NBC primetime coverage and how curated it is and and how tape delayed it is. But I think you're right that, um, you know, we live in an age now where mass culture is just kind of disintegrating year by year and where we, you know, all have different music that we like that nobody else listens to. And, you know, the we're we're not getting the the ratings of the mash finale for breaking bad or or whatever the most popular shows are and the olympics are really you know as much of a cliche as it is it is a time when the country comes together and all watches the same stuff and i don't think we're at the point yet where people are all just off in their own 
little, you know, private viewing rooms watching, you know, 58 kilogram judo while somebody else is watching table tennis. <laughs> we're, we're not quite at that point. But I think people should be wary of complaining about the, the very controlled, contrived NBC experience, because I think there is a value in what they do. Um, Alexander, how are you handling this? Are you staying with the, the primetime NBC feed or are you dipping down into recherche competitions? Well, I'm, I'm like the blonde in the old joke where they, she's watching the news and like there's somebody who jumped off a bridge and she bets $20 when it comes back on half an hour later being like, I saw her jump before. I didn't think she'd jump again. Um, I didn't tell that joke, but Google, Google the joke like blonde and someone's jumping off a bridge. But basically you get on Twitter and then like f- five hours before you're going to tune into your traditional NBC broadcast, it tells you who made it to the all-around finals. So usually I'm not like a spoiler, like an anti-spoiler person who wanders through the world. She is in plastic announcing, don't tell me anything about anything because I want to see it as a surprise. But when you're contractually obligated to hang out on the Internet a lot for work, sometimes you don't know, like, is Gabby Douglas going to make it through? And you kind of want that little uh, surprise to happen. And so that is the one problem with, like, there are people on the Internet telling you what's happening when it happens. Otherwise, I have no complaints about NBC's thing. Although I wish they put all the, like, emotions in just a one-hour block after the main events. I don't need, like, a 15-minute thing about, like, here's a drawing that Michael made when he was sick that, you know— that let's just like interview the athletes more. No, well, I think they need to preload the emotions. The emotions need to come between seven and eight, and then then we can pick up with the action. I need to know what my emotions are before I start watching this. I also want to say that uh, that blonde joke telling is going to be added. I think in twenty twenty four as uh, a <laughs> summer Olympics thing. So get your game together, Alexandra. I mean, uh, that was just uh, about uh, about spoiler culture. I think that I do have. Sympathy for folks who can't watch during the workday, but I, it is more annoying to be told as a journalist that you're ruining someone's <laughs> experience because spoilers yeah. around a TV show, it's like, okay, that's, that's entertainment, but this is news it's happening. You're telling me not to report the news. That's right. Yeah. Eventually, they're going to say that about like incursions into Crimea too. No, don't tell me now. I was going to watch the news <laughs> at seven. Um, so yeah, uh, hang on. I haven't gotten up to eighteen twelve yet. Right. So, Josh, I, I do. I sort of blame you for this, but also praise you for this. One thing that you guys were talking about uh, on Hang Up and Listen uh, is uh, where, by the way, there's a daily update every day. So, um, was sort of you know, if you look at some of these more esoteric sports, how amazing the announcement are at making it interesting. I mean, not all of them are amazing, but I think you guys mentioned weightlifting. So I watched weightlifting and I'm thinking, I was watching women's 58 kilogram weightlifting or something. And I was thinking, well, how interesting can this be anyway? They pick it up and either they get it up in the air or they don't, you know, but they really are good. It's, I mean, I was astonished at, at, I mean, I don't know. I, suddenly I was just caught up in the excitement of this and they were like telling me little things. I have some exciting news for you, Colin. Okay. I, assi- I assigned a piece that uh, my colleague Justin Peters wrote. It's in my inbox right now. I'm going to edit it as soon as I get off uh, off the show. the The topic is clean and jerk. Which is better, the clean or the jerk? And he actually he loves the res- Justin loves the wrestling commentator on the online feed, and he asked he posed that question to the official Olympics weightlifting commentator. 
you'll have to read the story to find out the answer. But yeah, I mean, it's so it's so fun to find out, you know, all the nuances to these events that we don't really know about or, or care about every four years. And typically, there's so much complaining about announcers, especially among like hardcore sports fans about how they're, you know, not really adding stuff to the sports. But this is a case where announcers are absolutely essential. And I think that, you know, especially on these online feeds where they're they're doing a really good job at explaining these are the rules of archery. This is how air rifle works. This is these are the nuances of weightlifting. And and that's a really fun part of the Olympics. So, Alexandra, uh, I, I know that you felt as though at the women's uh, beach volleyball uh, tournament, the announcers were were what sort of trying to get us into more of a WWE mood about things. Well, they even, I feel they had a horse in the race and their horse left after the last race and disappeared from the metaphor. But basically, it was like going home at Thanksgiving and your parents are like, well, you know, the, I see this new partner that you've brought here, Carrie Walsh Jennings. But remember Misty May Trainer? You and she together were perfect and golden <laughs> in ways that have not been equaled before or since. And so these four announcers are sitting there and they'll say, and like Ross will put up something to the net and they'll say, well, you know, Misty May Trainer would have gotten that. Well, like something to that effect. It's gotten better. <laughs> but it's still, there's a lot of, they were invested in that pairing and now it's, hasn't played out they've gone their separate ways yeah simon is still here and garfunkel's gone or vice versa i don't know how they shape out and so it's funny hearing that or hearing nastia lucan sort of try to be really polite about every other gymnastics competitor when the guys are sitting there saying oh the her coach left and nastia goes yes i hear that it was probably difficult for her it's a sort of a fascinating mixture of like these people have been in the sport and they've been invested but sometimes preferences creep through anyhow all right, so I just have to, as a, a listener update, say that Paul Simon was at the Democratic National Convention. It's Art Garfunkel who left to concentrate on beach volleyball. Um, all right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back with a little bit more. We're going to tell you uh, about some of the great jobs at the Olympics. Disgusting that Pokemon Go is an Olympic sport, but Alpine Neti Pot isn't. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Olivia Piper. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gabby Douglas. For show pages, articles, and a video feed from the Here and Now Kiss and Cry Room, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the voices you hear on audiobooks. And now... Back to Colin. Yes, I spend all of my time with uh, earbuds in because I'm listening to audiobooks and then I'm listening to podcasts all the time. And now Hang Up and Listen is adding a daily podcast for the Olympics, which means more time with my earbuds in, more time sitting on my bike listening to my headphones, which, by the way, made me very upset. Uh, well, first of all, I should just say, never mind that I was upset. Uh, Josh Levine uh, is a writer and executive editor at Slate and host of Slate's uh, podcast, the aforementioned Hang Up and Listen. Alexandra Petri uh, writes for the uh, con, writes the Compost blog for the Washington Post and is the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Um, yeah, I, I am going to take a moment to complain about this. So, Josh, uh, uh, the only sport that uh, my decrepit body still does is road biking. And, and I'm sitting, I was at a writer's conference at Cape Cod and I'm sitting uh, at the bar having lunch and and 
they're talking about the fact that the water bottles flew out of these people's bikes, apparently because the Olympics makes you take the water bottles that they have so that you don't try to sneak some branding. I mean, I, I just I know how road bikers are and like how much they fuss over every little piece of equipment and rip off anything that may have the tiniest bit of weight and all this stuff. The idea that you would train for all these years and then get on your bike and go over these stupid cobblestones and your water bottle would fall off. It just it just it, it infuriates me. That is an extremely fine-grained complaint. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's all there is to say about it. All right, so we we want to we want to talk a little bit about um, about uh, wonderful jobs that you can have at the Olympics. Josh, I'm going to start out with you. Uh, Justin Peters, who you mentioned just a, a little while ago, uh, wrote about this guy at the trap shooting competition. What, what, what does this guy do again? So at the trap shooting competition, you uh, shoot a, a clay pigeon type deal. And if you hit the clay pigeon, then it bursts in a pleasing uh, pigeon burst, as as a pigeon does. Um, but if you miss, you know, what happens? How do you tell that you miss? There's a guy sitting in a chair wearing a hat, and he raises a red flag. And everybody is looking at this guy. So, you know, you've got the shooter, you've got the pigeon, but everybody's got to look at the red flag guy. And so Justin said, this is the best job at the Olympics. You get to sit in a chair. You wear a hat and you have a flag. Right. You just have to figure out how to optimize that somehow, you know, like how to like, you know, make sure people get your glossies uh, so you can get other jobs. Now, Alexandra, oh, I don't, you go ahead. Did you see our sequel to the other best job at the Olympics? No. Colin? No. Where are you? The, go- the other best job at the Olympics is the guy who dives into the swimming pool with scuba gear on to retrieve swimmers earrings. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask Alexandra about the other guy. I know that you've been tweeting a lot about the swimming, so I, I assume you've noticed that they have lifeguards there. The, 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 and apparently this is some kind of Brazilian law that requires lifeguards patrolling any pool larger than 20 feet by 20 feet. But, you know, I mean, talk about the Maytag repairman, a reference that you're probably too young to get anyway. But, I mean, what is a lifeguard ever going to do in that situation? <laughs> well, I kind of like the idea that you'd have to have a lifeguard required at Olympic swimming by your local regulations because that'll be used in campaigns as an argument against whatever government's in power for decades to come. But also, like, maybe the swimmers are too busy swimming, and if somebody starts unexpectedly forgets how, you can have your moment of glory as the Olympic lifeguard. I was trying to think of scenarios where, like, if I were doing backstroke, I would constantly bang my head on the edge of the pool. So perhaps you'd have a lifeguard who could dive in while everyone else is correctly executing their turns. And save the day. I, 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 you don't think you need one until it turns out you needed one. Yeah, I guess. Although if I were sinking to the bottom and Michael Phelps wanted to dive in and help me, and the lifeguard was going, "No, I got this," um, <laughs> uh, I'd be. A it's little a little bit like ha- like having the fire marshal at the fire marshal's convention. <laughs> the um, important. It's their job. I, I, Josh, I was thinking that the other uh, one of the other really great jobs, and I really don't really know how you get this job. And uh, anyway, the opportunity has come and gone. But one of my favorite features on Hang Up and Listen during the football season is whimsy watch, and and I really feel as though. I've never seen such whimsy as the whimsy that was infusing those ceremonial tricycles at the in the Olympic opening ceremony. Every group yeah. was ushered in by these people. I can hear Alexander laughing in the background. So I know you're both going to have things to say about this. But these people, it was like the happiest tricycle, the most whimsical, tri- if, if that's what it was, tricycle that has ever been assembled. Well, 
I think the way that we know the Brazilian government operates and the IOC operates, I bet that those uh, tricycle gigs, you had to probably pay a pretty penny to to get on one of those tricycles. You got to know a guy who know, knows a guy who knows a tricycle guy. Um, but yeah, those were pretty neat. Uh, I, I can't really dispute that. And it reminded me of, you know, before like a big international soccer game, how they have those little kids who walk out holding <laughs> hands with the players yes. <laughs> for some reason. That was uh, was a cool job for a kid. For a little kid, yeah. So, Alexandra, did yeah, you? Yeah, I would bump did, that up above the guy with a flag and a hat because not only do you get to have like a tricycle and a hat, but you get opulent flowers behind you and symbolism. And there's a small child carrying like a sprig of hope walking next <laughs> or behind you. I think, like, as far as you, you do have to move your legs a little tiny bit, but that seems like a totally fair trade for what is otherwise clearly the most whimsical of all Olympic gigs. Unless you have to, like, get off this incredibly happiness-inducing tricycle and go back to some crap apartment in a favela, at which point you'd feel like, oh, well, the peak of my life when I was when I was on this tricycle. You know, it was like it was everything that could inspire uh, joy. Hey, we've got about two minutes left, and Josh, I wanted to quickly talk about uh, sparkle creep uh, in uh, gymnastic uniforms, women's gymnastic uniforms. Or we can talk about shirtless gymnastics men, uh, another thing that, uh, that Slade has been talking about, the notion that the male gymnasts would like to uh, compete uh, shirtless, and so would everybody who watches like them to also do that. But there has been a little problem with, not a problem, but a phenomenon of sparkle creep, that there's more glitter and crystals uh, on these women gymnast uniforms. What do we know about that or think about that? The New York Times described it as a crystal arms race, which sounds incredibly serious. This is a very serious topic. I mean, to get serious for a second, it is really strange, the whole theater of gymnastics and similar to figure skating, obviously, but just how amazing these women are as athletes and what an impressive athletic spectacle it is, but how simultaneously just the presentation of it seems so retrograde. Um, and it's just hard to reconcile those two things. I mean, I guess it's, it helps explain why the sport is so popular, but the, the leotards are a bit spangly. They are spangly. I hear music. I hear music. That means we're at our end. Alexandra Petri and Josh Levine, two dream guests on my Olympic team of guests. Thank you. Gabby, how hard is a balance beam? You just walk on it. Cayenne. Cayenne. Cayenne, you're sitting on a lazy boy, eating nacho cheese Doritos and drinking Kool-Aid. Who are you to tell Gabby Douglas how to do her job? As a matter of fact, Greg, before the bicycle crash I had at the end of June, I was training to qualify for the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Really? Nah. Pass the Funyuns. <laughs>